The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Americans we're discussing before you listen to this podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Slate's TV Club Insider Podcast for Season 3, Episode 8 of The Americans, Divestment. In this episode, we're going to talk to Allison Wright, who plays Martha. And stay tuned, because after that, we're going to talk to our stunt coordinator, Ian McLaughlin, who's going to teach you how to safely set someone on fire or crash your car. I'm Molly Nussbaum, the script coordinator here at The Americans. We are back in our writer's office in Gowanus, Brooklyn. I am here today with my bosses, Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg, and the great Allison Wright, or as you might know her, Martha. Hi. Hello, Yay. Allison. Martha. Welcome the to great the... is good. I like that. Just the great. Yeah. Um, this is a kind of a huge episode for Martha, who's having a sort of huge season. Can you just tell me, like, wh- when you're getting these scripts, are you just freaking out for Martha? Freaking out with excitement and and fear for Martha and just, yeah, pure excitement of what I'm getting to do. Yeah, it's been fantastic. Hey, Allison, I've just noticed in this podcast, you're affecting an accent similar to the kind of accent that Matthew Reese affects when I've he's I've been working camera. on it. I've been trying to copy him. What is that about? Why are you guys big fakers? Big <laughs> fakers. <laughs> are you from a nearby island to his island? Uh, near, larger, better Island, you might say. The Welshman, yes, yes. I'm from very pretty close, pretty close by. Yeah, which makes it all the more fun when we're in between Martha and Clark, the ridiculousness of our normal voices in between. It's good times. Yeah, it's, you, it's pretty funny to watch your, that. Do, do you use an accent the, in the show? No. When, <laughs> I was like, you, oh dear. When you're on set and working, do I'm trying to remember when we chat. You have no, I don't need. Yeah, I don't need to do that with this yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. But some, some I might. Yeah, mm-hmm. but that would be a long time in between <laughs> chatting. You know, that would be a long time. When you first appeared on the show, did you have any idea that Martha would be this character with this like incredible sex life and just like this crazy uh, I, sexual history? You know, I like to bring it. I like to bring it with, with bring me to work, porn, and I think you guys just picked table. up on that, right? And you're like, okay, <laughs> we'll write some for you, right? Yeah. Oh, fine, okay, we'll write it. What's yeah. your favorite Martha? Sexual exclamation of all three seasons so far. Most difficult? Because that's going to be the, yeah. I mean, I now it's over and now I can laugh about it. Was in, I think it was in season one. Uh, and I had to say, whilst being um, sexualized from behind, I had to say, uh, <laughs> ah! Oh, shoot yourself, enemy Clark! I, I think knew that's that my was going to be it. I, I think that's my it favorite. Was, when I read it, I think I vomited in my mouth. I really did. And I think I called every actress that I knew and was like, how am I going to say this line? But Martha's had like so much to do. And now that Agent Taffett has arrived and he interviews her in this episode, she's starting to put together not only that she might really be in trouble, but that her marriage is going to very much be in trouble as well. Right. Can you just talk a little bit about sort of like your a excitement in reading all of this, Mm -hmm. but also just where you think Martha's head is at at this point as so many things are coming down all at once. Well, I think it's completely scrambled at this point. I think she's been shocked like she's been hit with a truck or something into some sort of action. There's been no action so far this season in terms of her thinking about what she's doing or talking about what she's doing or talking about how she feels about it. And now she's been forced into action. I think she's scrambling to keep up with what could possibly be happening and what it might mean. Those thoughts are coming slowly, but she's in a shitstorm, you might say. Yeah. But she does choose to confront her husband and she confronts him as her husband. 
Instead of? Instead of as some sort of master manipulator. Got it, got it, got it, yes. I don't think that she can, and you guys helped me out with this tremendously when when I was emailing you about this episode, about where she would be with her thoughts and what she could possibly think. And just beginning to think something is wrong is is quite a big thought, not thinking 12 steps ahead of that yet. Well, you just said it yourself. You know, the thoughts are coming slowly. Sometimes yep. people ask the question, how could Martha not get it? How could she not be ahead of this? And if you've ever been in denial of something or not seen something that was happening to you in your own life, then you shouldn't really struggle with this story. Then right. you know what it's like to, as you put it, have the thoughts come slowly. Mm-hmm. It's just a it's just a human reality. And she has absolutely no reason to suspect him of anything. She really doesn't. It's like I've heard people talk about Stan before. Like unless Elizabeth and Philip really slipped up or purposely gave him something, there's no reason that he should ever suspect them of anything. They're his neighbors. And I don't think this is something that Martha, these kind of ploys, these honey traps, I don't think it's something that she's familiar with. She has reason to suspect him of being a husband who is a workaholic. Yes. You Mm -hmm. know, or who is different or Mm -hmm. odd. And there was always a part of me that um, when she asked to, to go and see his apartment. There was also a part of me that just a woman's point of view from a human perspective that, you know, where is he all the time? Is there, you know, is there possibly another family or is there possibly another woman? Is there possibly another wife? That that thought's going to come way before is my husband yeah. in a disguise and working for the right. KGB. We ourselves had, had to sort of step back and ask ourselves, what does Martha know from her point of view? What would she think from her point of view? And in fact, when that bug is first found in the prior episode, among her thoughts would be, well, good. Now I now I can have things come out in the open with Clark. Absolutely. Clark's going to come yeah. downstairs now. Yeah, he's going to come now downstairs. Now it has to be and open. And, and, and will talk open. to me together and, and say I did yet, a good job. Yep. And, yet and I might get a promotion. And yet, there's an alarm, <laughs> and yet there's an alarm bell going on and you sort of see what she subconsciously knows what she's repressed when she goes into that yes. bathroom and hides it. But there's this there's this tear in her where she's waiting. She's waiting to be saved. And, and also of, waiting, remaining in denial where it's safe. That's right. right but the, exactly. That's right. But the longer she waits, the the, the she can't the stay longer, there forever. Yeah. The, the longer she's waiting for an answer that isn't coming yes. until that confrontation mm. in this episode. Mm-hmm. Well, we also talk about the Jennings kids and how on there's a level on which they know everything. There's a level deep in everybody's unconscious where they know the whole story. Deep, deep down. Yeah. Yep. Deep, deep. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, I know this is something that you guys talked about a lot while working on this particular episode uh, with Josh, but also it's a huge debate throughout the season in the writer's room of like, how much does Martha really know and how much is she sort of willingly saying, you know what, I don't want to know more? You know, we have very strong instincts and whether we choose to listen to them or not, they do tell us on some level what's going on. On some level, she felt unsafe at some point and decided she wanted to get herself a gun and be able to protect herself. Maybe it was the slaughter of the family in Alexandria. Maybe it was some sort of spidey sense that something wasn't right. And I think that's exactly what she's feeling here in this situation too. But there are different ways for her to be in denial about it. She can just avoid it, avoid thinking about it completely and just act like it's not there, it's not happening. She could diminish the responsibility of whatever it is that she's doing or the information that she's um, giving away, there are different. There are many different levels of the denial for that, which has been a great thing for me to learn about and read about, and really where I want to make her come from because it is ambiguous. Yeah, and there's a. It's an interesting. You talk about how much she knows at the end of this episode, after that confrontation with Clark. He gives her a lot of truth from his point of view. Yep, 
at the end of which he says, is that enough or do you need more? Mm-hmm. And she says that's enough for now. Which in of itself is ambiguous. Yes. Depending right. on how that line <laughs> is, you know, how he's saying it or what she's hearing or what she thinks he means. It it really all is. And that's a, it's a fun place to have it be at the moment. I think it's the right place for it to be living at the moment as well. People really care about is Martha in denial if she says that's enough they have an opinion on it. It, it makes them either angry mm-hmm. or they, or it makes them sympathetic. You used to joke, Allison, about the uh, Poor Martha Club, yep. um, which I think the Poor Martha Club used to be bigger and has gotten smaller. But dwindling. It, but it's dwindling, it's, it's dwindling but it's still there. For Martha Martha's. <laughs> you know, one thing that we talk about a lot is that this marriage, which started as a seemingly fake relationship and then seemingly a fake marriage, has become a very real relationship and a very real marriage. Yes. And because of that, I think that's why the poor Martha Club finds itself dwindling because the problems now that Martha's experiencing in a crazy way are heightened real marriage problems. And ultimately, she's also strangely being empowered through this relationship. She is, yeah. And growing through Mm, it. mm. And I think maybe people are, are seeing that change. And definitely since season one to where we are now, she has definitely flourished and flowered somewhat and is more empowered and asking for what she wants. More people should be fake married to, to right? operatives from the KGB. Right? And the guy's not it's, around it's all the time. He doesn't leave his stuff anywhere. Look, he has if a you're going to have a fake marriage to a KGB operative, I'm it sure Philip Clark. is one of the yeah. best. Clark is, <laughs> Philip Clark's <laughs> one of the best cops. Yeah. I great think, guy, I think guy. that's what's so satisfying about the scene at the very end of this episode man named Walter Taffet came in, who's he, he's you, mm-hmm. is that we are seeing this empowered Martha. And she is taking the time to not just react emotionally and unravel immediately right there and lose the plot. And she's taking time to think about it on her own. For whatever reason, she's taking this time for herself to think through this without going straight to him. Well, right. That's what's also really interesting about it to me. And I know you guys talked about this a lot, that it's not right away at the end of seven, she doesn't go to him straight away and aggressively come after him. It comes a little later that she takes this time to really think and consider her options. And Well, she's ahead of him for the she, first time ever exactly. in the show. And it also speaks to, I think, the separation of the two different ideas that she has in her head. Sometimes, you know, reading about women that have been married to all these different kinds of men that have done all these different kinds of things, just even the thought that they could be that was far too much for the women to even consider. It took them a long time to even allowed themselves the thought of, could my husband be doing this, you know, to our children or to our grandchildren or whatever it was that was happening. So it takes a long time to even accept that as being a real thought. I'm kind of curious about what your process is, because I know we have conversations, but you read that script, you get the initial blast, but there must be some working process for you long before you get to set on this. And it's a process that we don't See, right. except in that we have conversations or exchange emails as you're doing that work. Yes. Uh, there's, you know, I don't know what, 80%, 85% of this of the work is happening before I'm getting to set, yes. Um, sometimes it's it's very easy to follow along the story and be able to, for me to make mental sense of where it's coming from and that progression and why that is happening. And sometimes it's completely befuddling, like in 307 and 308, which strangely is exactly where Martha should be as well because everything has gone tits up you know her world is completely scrambled eggs at the moment 
so that wasn't so logical for me to work through, but it was an amazing opportunity to get to do it. And I'm so glad that I did. And I think it worked out pretty fantastic in the end. And when you say 80% of the work is before, and is that work in your head? Do you ever work with other actors? Do you actually play the scenes aloud in your home? Do you, what, what, what is it that gets you there? I don't work with other actors. I work on my own. I'm reading physically the script a lot. Then I'm just starting to learn the lines. I do get to a point where I'm saying it out loud to myself. And then when I'm doing that, I obviously I have to know the other actors' lines as well. And then I feel like once I, if I have the luxury for time or whatever reason or the scene is big enough to get to work it that much, then I really know what I'm doing beforehand. And I, I really can track the story mentally as it's happening. But that's me running the scene. I'm maybe blocking it a little bit in my head. I'm working through it and I'm conscious of the other actor how they might be saying their lines and what I might get from that. When you take the recorder into the bathroom at the FBI and try to take it apart or destroy that, what was uh, your reaction to it, but also what kind of conversations did you have with Noah about? That's a long dialogue-less scene, but a lot happening, obviously. I think it jumped off the page immediately, and I and I felt I knew what it was, and I had a take on it, and I'm sure Noah did too, and it was... It was really became just a technical thing to get the different shots that he wanted right and the kind of effect that he wanted to create, which I haven't seen yet, obviously, but I'm dying to, dying to, because he was so excited about it and the strangeness of it and what it would be like, this sense of, you know, everything imploding on her and just complete, complete panic. But that was one of those scenes that was just right and easy and I think everybody knew what it was and had a good a good take on it. If it's a very emotional scene, do, do your neighbors ever bang on the ceiling oh, with a broom God, handle? Oh, God, you know what? Thank God, though. Because sometimes I hear them sneezing and stuff, and I'm like, oh, my God, what the fuck must they have to listen to? <laughs> <laughs> me doing, you know? Oh, my they God. They hear you screaming and crying. Which is sometimes Shoot it into I just me, Clark. sing. <laughs> Shoot it into me, no, not like that. Bang, bang, bang. Yeah. <laughs> Allison, thank you so, so much for joining us today to talk about episode eight. And now we're going to talk about the same episode with our stunt coordinator, Ian McLaughlin. Ian, we're so sorry that you're here with us today. How are you? <laughs> well, I warned you. I warned you this is coming. So you are our stunt coordinator here on The Americans for the third season. Yes. When you get a script from us, what's the first thing that mm-hmm. you're looking for or reading for with a new episode? So I'll get the script, and I'm looking for the fun. So I'll, I'll read the whole thing first. I want to understand the words and everything. I want to see what the character's doing, where we're going with the story. Thank you for that. And then, <laughs> and then I just read the, the action stuff. I go back and I just really start to break that down and try and understand what you guys are doing with the action and why are you doing it in a particular way. It's going to be specific. There's, it's character-driven. Characters do things in certain ways. Why'd they use a gun and not a knife? And I like to watch the whole series because it can all influence that one little scene. And then I have to decide the actors and do I need to double them or not? And who do I have to hire for that? Do I need riggers? What are my support? So when you have to double someone, that's hiring a stunt double, you know, so that you're subbing someone out mid-scene or for an entire sequence, right? Right. And then are the actors offended? Like, oh, you don't think I can do it? Or are (laughs) they relieved? (laughs) Sometimes they do. And a lot of times I'll include the actors in like we did on 308 when we did the burn. So... The guy who lit Venter on fire, he really wanted to light him on fire. 
<laughs> and now I had a stunt double there to do it, but I knew he could do the actual pouring the of the the gas. No, literally, literally throwing match. the match on him. Well, why would you need a double for that? That seems safe. Just enough. for proximity. I mean, he's lighting up a giant puddle of fuel. Right. So. So he has to just be very aware for his own safety of the spatial relation to that and the best way to th- like where to be throwing it. And I things kept like him that. eight feet away. Mm-hmm. And do you think he wanted to do it for? Character purposes, or just because how often does I one get to light so a big cool. puddle of fuel on fire? <laughs> That's what I, I think he was just so excited. About it. He didn't even care about the scene. He's like, he kept coming up to me. I really want to do this. I really want to light him. All right, all right, all right. I get to light him. So, yeah, so you didn't got, use the double. Didn't use the double, but of course we had the double um, getting lit. That guy did an amazing job. The actor didn't want to do that. I'm guessing. No, <laughs> no. What are you doing today at work? I'm going to get set on fire 10 times. <laughs> like, that's got to be a weird day, way to do it. Personally, I love fire. I love doing burns. And I, if I was even close to looking like Neil, I was going to do it myself. Because <laughs> I've done it enough that I have the experience of what it's like to be engulfed in flames and your outs like and your dangers. You are close to looking like Neil. I'm a little taller. <laughs> taller. Really? Oh, a lot taller. You're a lot yeah. taller. You're a and lot the, taller than the Neil. The face wasn't close enough. So. But, you know, Ian, it's so great hearing you talk about the way you approach it because it goes to the core of the show which is you you start with character also it has to be and and it's interesting because you think about stunts as such a technical thing Mm -hmm. which of course it is and we always we're very concerned about safety we talk about that in our prep meetings in our production meetings you have to worry about that a lot that's on your shoulders number one but where you start is where we start with character. And it's interesting even on something that could be as technical as this, that Absolutely. that's the beginning. It should be seamless. It's, you know, it's like good lighting. It, it, should, it shouldn't be gratuitous. Like I was saying before, it shouldn't be parentheses. We're stopping the story. Now's the stunt show. Let's resume our story. It has to feed into it. And, and a lot of times the editing and it gets cut down from being something super big just to make it flow better. But um, I like to th- go as far as I can first and then bring it back. So with this particular stunt, can you walk us through your preparation and then sort of on the day? Uh, we always refer to this in the writer's room as the necklacing scene, which I think actually mm-hmm. is the is the term for it, the mm-hmm. putting the tire around Venter's neck and, and setting him on fire. But what was your, your approach going into it? There's so many different ways to do fire prep. There's so many different levels you can do. You can do a full hood mask made out of silicone that looks exactly like the actor. So we can cast the actor's face and then cast the the stunt guy's face and put his face on top. Now he has a protection layer with a breathing unit and all these things. We didn't do any breathing unit. We didn't That's do what if you want to melt the face? Is that why you would do that? If you want to have flame directly on the face, you have to give a lot more protection. But we designed it in a way where we didn't have to use any mask at all. We did just skin and gel. But he could not inhale for any of the stunt. There are times you can get gulps of air. Um, Typically, if your arms are free, you can get gulps of air because the way you map out your fuel on the body, you can sort of like a swimmer would do in the crawl. They get a breath of air under their armpit. Hmm. But we had his arms tied in a tire, so he couldn't get a gulp of air unless he's moving forward. So there's ways to behave, too. So when I, we designed how he reacted to the flame, we made sure that he stood up and moved in a way where the flame's always traveling behind him. You know, if you're moving forward with your leading with your nose, you can have the heat bubble always pushing away from you. 
So well, is that in case he had to breathe or so that to keep him from getting too it, hot? It's both. It keeps a flame away from his face and he can get a gulp if he needs it. But usually we'll design it so it's within 30 seconds. No, no burn needs to be much longer than that. I mean, we're doing our cuts over the actors and you're only going to get little pieces of the burn anyway. So we had a bunch of things that helped us on that shot. When we were dumping the fuel on him, we were ensuring that they used a lot of fuel. So it looks like he's soaking wet, which when you put on the burn gel on a guy, the gel looks very wet. So we were able to hide it that way. Otherwise, it would have looked like, why is the guy soaking wet? But this so, burn gel, why don't you explain that? Because it's pretty interesting. This is, this is a burn gel... gel was made by Gary Zeller. He won an Academy Award for this years ago. But it's pretty standard in the industry. When you're designing this, you also have to design in the wardrobe because you have to put in layers of protective gear under the wardrobe. And then whatever bare skin is visible has to be covered in this gel. And it's like a thick, uh, it's almost like a Vaseline, but drippier. And you put it on the skin and heat can hit it. You feel the heat a bit, you feel warmth, but as soon as you feel like too much heat, maybe on your back or something is when you have to go out. And our signal to go out and fire is always, you go down face down on the ground, which, so here's, here's another trick we had. Part of this is when he dies, he needs to fall to his knees and go face down, which is always our signal to go out. So we used an audible. We had him yell out if he felt anything. So he went down, rolled around a bit, and uh, yelled heat at one point because he got a little hot. The fact that he was covered in gel, covered in fuel, and lit up was like we got one of the coolest full burns I've ever seen because he had his arms tied behind him. He had all everything going against him. Arms tied, had to go down face down. He had to go down in a puddle of fuel. Like, I don't know if you guys saw one of those takes. He stumbled away, and when he was going to go down, his foot slipped in the fuel, and he went down right in the fuel, not with his face, but with his whole lower body. And he stayed there for a good 25 seconds of full burn, engulfed, not just flame coming off his legs, but he was literally in a big puddle of fuel. It was the coolest thing. And he stayed with it. We protected him. We had a perfect setup. So he was able to stay with that burn for 40 seconds, twice, two 40-second burns. Had that stuntman been on fire a lot before? He's done like a little bit of fuel, a little bit of fire. Now work. he's done a lot. Now he's so done a lot. <laughs> Essentially, on the one hand, this is a highly technical, artistic, and respected career. And on the other hand, you, you get to be an eight-year-old. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's so much fun. I mean, I love performing stunts, too. I love doing them. But preparing them is even more fun, I think. You get to work with all the departments. You get to help form the action. I mean, I love when you guys write something that you're actually open to little suggestions. And a lot of times we don't talk, but we're on the same page when we just did <laughs> last week. <laughs> and, you we'll know, it was going Henry, around. Don't worry. Yeah, we'll cut that out. When we just we'll did the, you know out, what you should me... do? You should do it when we did the beep last yeah. week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, when, when I, they were like, we don't want to do that sounded complicated and i was thinking great <laughs> we're thinking the same here um okay back to fire just to clarify kids should or should not try this at home no don't try that at home <laughs> definitely don't try that at home um but we could teach you 
<laughs> I could burn one of you guys if you want. We can do it one day. I personally it. It would love great. to see Molly, you want to burn? Me and Molly yeah. and Joel looks skeptical. <laughs> Joel's out. I've got some free time later. <laughs> How did you come to work in stunts, Ian? I had a very wide background in all kinds of sports. Um, but the one that got me in was rock climbing. I've been rock climbing now for about 25 years. And with climbing, you get a lot of know-how and equipment and ropes and handling and rigging. So my very first job was actually a rigging job. Um, so when you talk about rigging in terms of on set, what kind of work does that entail? It's like wire work. It's like you're hanging a guy off the side of a building on rope or you're flying Spider-Man through the air. I don't think – we haven't done any wire work on this show, but I've done a lot of it in the Guys, past. that's felt like yeah, a suggestion. We're up for it. Yeah. We'll do it. <laughs> Maybe on fire and flying off the side of a building The too. whole show sometimes <laughs> feels like a high wire act, but I guess that's hey, something yeah. different. Yeah, that doesn't count. <laughs> So that was my start, and one of my first big breaks was uh, doubling Chris Maloney on SVU. So I did seven seasons doubling him, and I started to get into covering Jerry Hewitt, who was the coordinator of that show, and I just started coordinating from there out, and it's been a great run. (laughs) What's been one of your favorite stunts that you've done on this series? I have two favorites. The car scene. With Jammer. Well, we, you got to narrow it down. There's a couple car scenes. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. The one car scene. The crash at the end of the, the crash. Scene. Yeah, that was really fun prepping that and getting the right guys in the car and just go, go, go on a day. Where do we put the crash box and getting everything right? Were you surprised by what that looked like when you finally saw it? I'm so happy with the way that turned yeah, out. It was cool, wasn't it? Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. Can, can you explain what a crash box is for those who uh, don't know? A crash box is this really cool welded up steel box that they put the camera inside of in case the car hits it or whatever hits it. And you put that right in the line of fire. We did that with the motorcycle too. So when we did the in 301. Oh, I smell the second favorite stunt of the season. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one too. <laughs> oh, we did some wire work. Ha, oh, that's right. We, that's the right. We dragged the motorcycle. We dragged a motorcycle into the rider. And what's cool about that is we digitally removed all those wires so the audience wouldn't have seen them. Right. And one of my favorite shots on that whole sequence was the crash box shot. So there's a camera laying in the middle of the road and uh, Adam Wood was riding a motorcycle and he lays it down skids it down in the street and we got all these free sparks which was we didn't expect and you can see them in the crash box because it's low and the motorcycle comes right into the camera smash that's so that's a was great such shot a cool and we shot. like never have shots like that so the impact of it is so much better it's i just love great. that stuff and we did that in a car crash too there they, they asked me so where do you think we should put this camera I'm like mm, this, this this is a good one so I got my two drivers out. I said, guys, come over here. Where do you think you're going to be? Where, where are we going to land? Where is this all going to be? Because it's a hair of a second timing can change everything. You know, one car coming into another. It's just, it can be the difference of T-boning them in the door or in the tire or in the trunk. And it's, it's very precise control. So we all kind of stood around and pulled our beards and we said, yeah, that's, that's the spot for the camera right there. And we put it in a, a very special spot between two cars that were parked at the curb. And it was, it was one of the coolest shots because it got all the action. It saw the car, attack car coming in, saw Toledo pulling up, saw it got smashed. We saw the attack car pull out and pull away. It was almost, you could have showed the whole scene from that one camera. It was pretty cool. The, so the car crash uh, was in 303. Right. And the motorcycle with the wire rigging work was in 301. 
So those were your two favorite of the season two so favorites. far? Yeah. <laughs> Despite the firework. <laughs> I really love that that fight in 301 was great too. I mean, I love that move of Elizabeth putting her foot on that old style bumper yeah. of that car. Because in a weird way, it was like this period reference in the middle of a fight, but it also made so much sense. <laughs> and those fang bumpers. Ian, could, could you talk about the difference between stunt coordination and fight choreography and how you approach each and manage, manage the fights? Well... This season we had Chris Colombo doing the fight choreography. Chris is really good fight guy. He's got so many different disciplines and weapons handling. He's a real ace, and he's done a bunch of different shows. So I wanted to bring him in on this to do the fight. I'm not a fight specialist. I, You're do, a lover. I'm a, a lover. I'm a lover, <laughs> not a fighter. Chris is a fighter. You're a burner. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to get him in here to basically design the fights i designed one of them but i wanted chris to do the the more technical stuff because he's going to understand he's studied every discipline and when i told him this show was coming up and that i wanted him to come on he went and studied a bunch of the soviet fighting and he found this guy in canada who specializes in this stuff and he went through all the sistema and he really got his act together on and that. and then there are times when the two worlds often you should forgive the expression, collide. Like at the end of episode seven, the episode that Noah directed, there's a fight on the street that then turns into a stunt when Venter gets hit by the front of that car. Right. Well, yeah, that abduction sequence crazy because there's fight choreography involved and there's also stunt driving involved. And there's also, I mean, there's yeah, so the many physical moving action of throwing those guys. Parts. There's the woman's guns going back. off. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I'll, I'll, I'll do the overall coordination of that. And then I'll have Chris do the little poetic pieces of fighting and the fighting that I like to see that I, I want to see that works best for camera is Bigger stuff, um, bigger moves, not tiny little wrist grabs and twists and stuff. Those things don't really read. I want to see bigger, more telegraph things. Wardrobe helps. Long, loose hair really sells punches. And those reactions, <laughs> those head snaps, the hair flowing. So. And hides the face of your stunt person. And hides the face, yeah. yeah. So between me and Chris, you know, collaborating – He'll design something, and then I'll I'll even edit him right there on the spot and say, no, 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 let's bring that back. That's not what the character would do. Let's do something more like this. So we design together. It's really fun. What's a different challenge that you have with stunt driving? Because we do a lot of stunt driving on this show. It all depends what the action is with the car. You know, if you're doing a big, giant crash, you have to do a full roll cage in it. You have to do six-point belts. Sometimes you have to get the e-brakes redone so that you can drag your rear tires and smoke them up. We didn't do anything too crazy with these cars that we needed to do full prep. So it was really just kind of shaking them down, make sure they work. They I don't think our cars would be up to any of that. I was lucky when our cars start and run. <laughs> if basically. we bust up these yeah. cars, Duke props would just have a nervous breakdown. These our rear actually, tires are smoking at five miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> We this, just cut a shot from the last episode where a car pulled away from the turb, curb in a in just this billowy explosion of smoke. This supposed to be covert. Nobody's supposed to only, notice that. Only come from one of our prop cars. It was great. It was just great. It's actually a great era of cars because the newer cars are really difficult to work with. They're all computerized. 
They won't the, let you crash. They don't let you crash. They don't let <laughs> you no skid. <laughs> They're no fun. There's no there's no parking brakes in them. Like it used to be a great right. e-brake. You grab the e in these older cars. It's a big handle. You grab the e-brake. You can lock up the wheels. So if they're working right, these eighty era cars, if they work right, they're better than the new cars. They're really fun. Yeah, can so, you guys uh, do some big car crash next? <laughs> we'll see what we can do. We crashed you, into a tree first season. You weren't here. It was quite a thing. Oh, yeah. I it was saw a that. rubber tree. It looked terrible. We had to digitally <laughs> remove the tree. We the and put car it knocked fake, over the tree. We had to put we a fake the computer tree. tree. flop right yeah. to the ground. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't great. We needed yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> we really did need you. That's why you're here. It's good to have you. So, you know, before we finish, um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about, about the burn because you started by talking about character and we talked about the process of the burn, but there's also interesting history in terms of where it came from. And I wonder if you looked into it all, the history of necklacing oh, yeah, the and what happened in South Africa. And there's an interesting story about the actor who played Venter. Yeah, who, let's who, get into that. Yeah. So what came about when we were doing this burn, which none of us knew until the day, was that Neil, who played Venter, had actually witnessed these necklacings when he lived in South Africa. So we were putting a guy in a situation and sitting him on a crate and putting a tire over him where for all of us, it's pretty gruesome. And there's a lot of people who kind of don't even want to watch. They, they, they don't even want to see these burns on set. They kind of walk away. <laughs> but now in the middle of it, we're putting an actor who's actually seen this. And I can't imagine, you know, the well of emotions that he could reach into for this scene about to get lit on fire. He was out there, I don't know, it was five degrees out in a wet shirt with this whole backstory going through his mind. I mean, it, it must have been a really hard day. I saw him smoking more cigarettes than I actually ever have seen him that day. I think it was really getting to him. Yeah. <laughs> he did an amazing job. You know, I'm a little loath to follow that story with this story, but he was of the different South African uh, characters he was the one south african actor we had working and uh, so we went to him with a, a number of questions when we were working on the script and one of the things he told us right off the bat was the original name of that character was not venter but vetter and he said listen guys i think i should mention to you that the word vetter in in afrikaans means asshole <laughs> I was wondering why we said, changed. Oh, uh, well, we didn't we mean that. Just we that didn't name. Mean that. He said, well, if you just add an N and make it Venter, then you'd be okay. <laughs> so we went back to all those. We said, Molly, can you put an N into all the scripts? And we'd already shot some of the scenes, and we had to go back and, and ADR it so that people said Venter instead of Oh, Vetter. that's hilarious. Yeah. I was we wondering like, why we were that like, happened. Neil, in the future, bring that up right away. <laughs> but also, but, but also um, the actor who played Hans, uh, Peter Mark Kendall was telling us that he wound up having conversations with his parents about the history of that period since they his father I think was yeah, South his African, father was right. South African and and had left while all this was going on and it's it's very easy to forget today in 2015 that there was a time when apartheid was one of the big issues in the world and that those people fighting that oppression mm -hmm. were not at all sure that it would ever end. We're ending on a very dark note today, guys. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Got really real. Ian, well, thank I, I you. Can, I, I, hang on, I can give you a happy you note. Before, a different one? Well, but yeah, before sure. you, yeah, we don't have any scripts to work on today. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, thank you so so much My for sitting pleasure. down and talking to us. This was awesome. Thank Thanks you so much. Me. 
Thank you again to Allison Wright, Ian McLaughlin, Joe, and Joel for talking to us today about episode eight. Join me next week when we talk to our production designer, Diane Lederman, about episode 309, Do Male Robots Dream of Electric Sheep? A big thank you from all of us here at The Americans to our producer, Henry Milofsky, our senior producer, Laura Mayer, and our executive producer, Andy Bowers. I'm Molly Nussbaum. Thanks again for joining us. The Americans Insider Podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply.